0: The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 13, First Anniversary Special.
1: Welcome to the American History Podcast, hosted by Sean Warswick.
0: Okay, so welcome to the show. Um, this is, as I said just a moment ago, um, the first anniversary of the show. It's being released a little bit early. Officially, the first anniversary is July 16th, but this is being released on July 1st um, because the topic is the American um, War for Independence, and I felt like with 4th of July coming up, this was a pretty good time to release this episode. So just as way of introduction, um, this is myself and Chris Fernandez peckham of the Age of Victoria podcast, just kind of going back and forth discussing um, several myths and several issues from the war for independence. And so you're going to get both the American and the British perspective on this. The episode is a little bit longer than normal, uh, quite a bit longer than normal. Um, It is over an hour, about an hour and 50 minutes, so um, I don't want to give too much away, but I hope you enjoyed it. We had a great time recording it, and we hope to do more of this sort of thing in the future. So without further ado, here we go.
1: ...out tons, sure, sure, but it's just sure. it's running it in the background. I'm just going to no close worries. the door. Okay. Okay, we are live and on air. <laughs> God help us. Excellent. That was our persistence worthy of George Washington moment
0: (laughs) you know I was worried that it was me um Mm. especially because you had fixed yours yours had worked and I'm like god why is mine not working um I mean the wife is probably even more technically inept than I am which is (laughs) hard to believe that that could be humanly possible um but I don't know, I just thought, maybe I looked through the preferences and all that stuff, and I said, yeah. oh, how about updates? And it said, there's an update. I'm like, okay, let's try that.
1: <clears throat> Thank God. It it seems to work well, and my wife is a Skype addict anyway, so... Ah, so you've got an unfair advantage. I do, I do. I also have a, a small stack of books next to me, ready for when you ask <laughs> any questions. <laughs> and hopefully somewhere I've got some notes as well, so... Awesome. I've got a ton of
0: notes, but... um. And then I've got a, uh, an ebook here on my, my iPad in case I need to refer to anything. Um, but yeah,
1: let's do this. Great. Well, I suppose if you're listening to this show, this is a joint show, okay? It's not the um, solely Age of Victoria podcast, it's not solely the American History podcast, it's a history special chat on the American Revolution. So, do you want to introduce yourself, Sean?
0: Sure. Um, my name is Sean Worswick. Um, I live here in the United States. I'm the host of the American History Podcast, and my specialty is 19th and 20th century U.S. military history. Um, so, this is a little bit out of of my, my area of expertise, but not so far enough that I can't come up with a few good tidbits, I hope. I hope.
1: Excellent. Well, this is the first time we've done this face-to-face and it's lovely to meet you. Uh, it's my name, great meeting you too. Thanks. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham and I'm the host of the Age of Victoria podcast. So my interest is the sort of long 19th century history, which includes quite a bit of military history, but I'm also a bit passionate around sort of British military history in general. So again, I think this is an interesting period. And I don't know, Sean. Do you want to maybe start us off with talking about the the classic American myth of the revolution and how it's taught?
0: Yeah, you know, um the, it's funny cuz I have a student who who um messaged me not too long or a former student who messaged me not too long ago and um she was she said, you know, the, the American war for independence and then she and, you know, um kind of a, in brackets there, she said, "Hey, um uh I do not I do not ever call it the American Revolution thanks to you. Um so I think the first kind of basic myth is that it's a revolution. Hmm. Um and it's it's not really a revolution. They're not trying to march on London and execute the king and um change the government. Um it, it I would say that it's much more of a secessionist movement. They're trying to secede um from the British Empire. Now here in the United States, if you say secession, people start to freak out, um, they start to go into conniption fits, uh, oh my god, it's secession, and then they automatically think slavery. Um, so those two things are not necessarily um, related. But that, So that, that's kind of the first thing is that this isn't a, a revolution as such. It's not like the French Revolution where they marched on Paris and mm. they wanted to change the government of France – Um, That's not what they're trying to do at all. Um, So then that leads you into other myths as well, of course.
1: Well, it's interesting. Just before we move on, I think it's interesting that you mentioned slavery there because, of course, actually during my reading, and maybe it's something we can touch on later, is that slavery does seem to be an issue underlying in this war that that perhaps doesn't get highlighted or covered enough.
0: There is is, um, the issue of slavery. Um, and I think it's going to depend on which you know, uh, like most of this stuff, it's time and place. Um, so depending um, on who's being, who's asking the question, um, and what sources you're reading, slavery's you know there is that issue. And and interestingly enough, and I've got it down here. We're going to talk about um, that's one of the myths is that slavery is a, a, a sin of the South and. I would suggest that it's actually um, both sides uh, mm. do have a hand in slavery and the slave trade. Um, we get this kind of black and white myth, uh, or maybe this black and white narrative, where you know the South is the bad guys, the North mm. they're the good guys, and it's very Star Warsy ish. You know, yeah. um, black suits, Darth Vader. Up, oh, yep, he's the bad guy. Um, but it's it's obviously much more complicated than that. So yeah, we'll, we we can definitely get into that.
1: That's great, because I, I think it's interesting when you and I were talking about doing this the first time, It it's sort of, and it strikes me a lot with my American friends when I first meet them usually, they often say, oh, it's the 4th of July soon, you guys must be sore about losing the war, you know, and it's, it, it's like, well, honestly, no, because any, anyway, it was hundreds of years ago, But <laughs> but but we don't really touch on it in our education system at all or even it's not really thought about over here so my my kind of image of the american war for independence is that there was george washington um there was a lot of heroism by george washington there was um some rioting in philadelphia there was some messy campaigning and then everyone got overexcited and declared independence and it was all done fairly quickly and of course when you dig into it, it's a bit different from that. But I think sure. that there is, a, there is an element of a sort of national creation myth here that we don't see in Britain.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so one of the things that you're going to get here in the United States, and, and that's interesting that you bring that up, because my question was, how do the British view this? And mm. I think I might have even asked you that when we were bouncing ideas around yeah because i I, I seem to remember you said that uh, they don't really um mention it at all um and so i find that pretty interesting because well uh, americans are very Mm. (laughs) american-centric or in general not everybody um but so we kind of think well of course everybody studies this we studied it why wouldn't Mm. you study it um so there is that part but also um we kind of grew up with this idea that – or at least I've had this idea bounced around that other countries tend to learn more about us than we tend to learn about them. Hmm. And I think that's that's fairly true um, because we are very much centered on American history when we're teaching it here in, hmm. in the United States. But um, at that I just find that fascinating that the British kind of like, well, you know, there's – there's a couple of riots here and there. Boston, they get upset, you know, and then bada boom, bada bing, they're gone. And yeah, have a nice day. We'll see you
1: later. <laughs> you know, it's. Yeah. Well, it's very much like that because, of course, for us, history, everyone over here sort of knows how history is going to be taught. When you go to school, you remember how your history was, and it's going to be the same thing. You're going to start off maybe a little bit on the Celts, and then you'll do the Romans. Everyone loves doing the Romans. Once you've done the Romans, Uh, It all goes a bit quiet. You're vaguely aware there's something that happened in the Middle Ages, possibly. But you definitely stop after the Romans until the Vikings arrive. Big, big thing doing Vikings costumes, things like that. Then it's straight into 1066. Um, Then there's something about the high Middle Ages, if you're (laughs) lucky. Uh, You know, you're talking about hundreds of years just being skipped over. And then it's the Tudors, and that's the big thing. Everyone loves the Tudors, Queen Elizabeth, you know, it's it's a great thing to teach history to sure. children. You know, you pull them in, great stories, good interest. After that, it's sort of, there's a hazy bit about the Civil War, maybe. Um, that That's kind of galloped through. And then you hit the sort of unlucky period when you're 14, uh, where you will be hammered over the head with things about the agricultural revolution and the seed drill um, and then just after you've gone through that absolute turgid hell uh, you then get absolutely rocketed through world wars one and two um, and then that that's your gallop through history done so it's like <laughs> you have crammed what two thousand years of history in into that whole time and it's sort of it's quite clear there are large chunks missing and it was only after you know i started podcasting really that i actually really looked into the american revolution it's it's really fascinating but it's just to most british people it it happened and it's important to the americans but it's not looked at here
0: yeah yeah and for us you know it's unfortunately i mean you're gonna get these kind of mythical stories, you know, Washington cut down the cherry tree, and mm. um, I cannot tell a lie, and, you know, you get some of that in there. Um, but I think one of the biggest myths, and this really comes about after uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War, um, and that's the idea that the Declaration of Independence is the founding document of the mm. United States. Um, and that's that's a huge problem, and, and, I mean, you even mentioned the 4th of July, you know, Um, It's Independence Day. It's – (laughs) we're celebrating the founding of the country. Um, Okay, but Independence Day didn't found the United States as we understand it today. Mm. Capital U, capital U for United, capital S for states. Um, The document's a vehicle again for secession. Um, So it's like the divorce papers, if you Mm. will. Um, This isn't the marriage document. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know? Um, It's – a secession from the british empire and you know if you look at the document um you'll see that they spelled united states with a small u and a capital s for states Mm. um and that i think was on purpose um you know and i've got it here let me find it because i've got the closing paragraph of the declaration um and it's it's very fascinating if you actually read it um let's see where did it go Blah um, blah blah blah. Of course, when I need to find it, now it's not
1: here. Let's see, I I happen to have a an original copy here of the Declaration of Independence and certainly not a replica from a museum. Oh, nice! Um, which is up on the wall, believe it or not, in my study, along with one of my favorite paintings, which is actually Washington crossing the Delaware. Um, oh, that's a great painting. It, it really is, and that's. That, for me, is like one of those things where you can see just how myth building um and and history kind of meet in this beautiful piece of artwork
0: yeah it's it's fantastic um so let's see here blah 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 all right um he says that um Jefferson wrote the the document okay, and he says mm. that um it's being ratified by the representatives of the United States of America, yep. And that the United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. So there, there are 13 independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown mm. and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. Um, so they're not creating – a united states um this is not a a the creation of the nation the united states um this is the creation of 13 separate and independent colonies Absolutely. and the treaty of the the treaty that ends the war with britain the treaty of paris of 1783 the british crown recognizes 13 independent states mm. um and i think that's, and so that's like a big myth
1: that's not that's not wholly <clears throat> surprising either i mean kn- because we're really talking to set the scene for listeners about a a very small area compared to what is the current United States we're yeah yeah we're talking about the the coastal strips essentially before you get to the Appalachian mountains aren't we yep yep and that that's really so important when we look at this is that this this is very much the stepping stone into the continent from the old world of Europe and i think long before Long before the um, events we're going to talk about today, for the British, this was very much the case of we've set up these toll these toe holds, these little finger holds onto this continent, and those are here to help us basically extract resources from what we are going to call um, virgin land. I mean, you, yeah. know, you know, it's not if you are a Native American, this is going to be a very unpleasant process for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah and, and it's interesting because these colonies you know when we look back we we tend to look back and we know the how the story ends or mm. at least how it gets to this point um so we know that while well, the United States is going to become this great powerful nation so forth and so on um going to do all these things okay we know that but they didn't know that in 1776 Mm. They didn't know that in 1780. Um, this was very much an experiment. Um, and one of the things that I try to get my students to understand is that maybe you should look at the United States in the 17 – in at least in the leading up to the Civil War as kind of like the European Union. Mm. It's this union of states. And the states kind of have this independence and this sovereignty. Um, there There are questions about who 's more powerful, the general government or the states mm. and um, you could argue that well, the general government shows that it 's more powerful because it wins the civil war mm. um, and I always tell my students okay that 's great, but you know if you and I are having a debate and you shoot me dead that doesn 't mean you won the debate
1: well that 's interesting you say that because that that was something from this period that people would have maybe said. Actually, you know, a, a just outcome after a just war is a just, you know, settlement. And sure. And what was that old line of um, Pompey the Great after the, or or during the decline of the Republic when he says, "Don't quote laws to men with swords," and it, <laughs> it, it, it it's very much like that.
0: Might makes right. Yeah. Um. So the, so there's there's like this is such a fascinating period, and there's all sorts of great issues. Um one of the biggest issues that that of course, if you're talking about the American Revolution or the American War for Independence, mm. um, whatever you want to call it, um, is the idea that this is all about taxes. Mm. you know, um it's just a it's just a, a tax revolt. Um, that's kind of uh, true, but um it's really part of what I would say is is a crisis. Period for the of empire for the British Empire. Absolutely, Um, you know it's not that these these Collins are being cheap. Hmm. Okay, they 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 argue that um, taxes were being levied in an unconstitutional fashion, Hmm. in their opinion. So it's not that they're saying, hey, you know, um, we don't want to pay taxes because you're raising them too high. Um, Because if I remember correctly, even what they would have been, they were still fairly low taxes if you were to
1: compare it to what you would have had in England. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of them fell on some, what are essentially some quite uncommon items apart from some of the things that are swept up in the Stamp Act, which was obviously yeah. deliberately more widely drawn. Sure. I, I, I think it's interesting, it's fascinating that you you pick it up like that because as I was reading on it, from the British point of view, their view seemed very much to be this this isn't anything to do with taxation exactly. This is solely for us about the fact, and I'm I'm expressing their view, I'm not having a go at <laughs> founders when I say okay. this. Um, the, the view seemed to be that this is a group of fairly self-interested colonials who have um, been able to do whatever they want for a very long period and have indulged in some really corrupt practices with using local militias to support local governors, to, you know, exhort bribes for passing legislation in the colonies, mm-hmm. not paying for help during the um, French and Native American wars, and then um, smuggling goods to France um, fairly opportunistically at every occasion. So it from their point of view, I think they saw it as a, a fairly aggressive colonial response to reasonable demands and it's when you when you get into those situations you know people people even with the best will in the world like today struggle to negotiate compromises and oh, yeah. especially when we're talking about you know you could be talking 6 to 8 weeks delay getting messages across the atlantic to even negotiate
0: yeah it's 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 really i'm I'm fascinated that the british even see it like this too because the colonials are basically arguing that um, taxes are being levied um, in a way that's not constitutional. And they're trying mm. to come back to um, the Glorious Revolution of 1688 um, yeah. and the British Civil War and the the, the rights of Englishmen. They, they talk about this a lot, the rights mm. of Englishmen. Um, and so the heart of all this is – and you touched on it – is the – Question of local control versus imperial control mm. or central control, if you want to talk about that. yeah, um, You can take the argument further. Um, Virginians, as far back as the 17th century, had begun arguing that because these colonists left England, um, this act of leaving England rendered parliamentary supremacy not only impossible but unconstitutional. They said mm. that, you know, hey, we've got our assembly here. Um, We're not represented um, in parliament. We have no voice in parliament, and so our local control is what matters. We have control over issues such as taxes and regulation of trade because we don't have a voice in parliament. Um, So the colonists are saying that, number one, first of all, they have no representation, and secondly, that parliament is not all-knowing. Mm. You know, you're 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 a member of Parliament, you know, I don't know, you live somewhere in England and then you go to London and you discuss these issues and you vote, but you don't know what's going on in Virginia or Massachusetts. Mm. And um so things like the Navigation Acts that were designed to regulate trade, they're saying are not only unrealistic, but they're unconstitutional. Mm. And that's an interesting argument because you can fast forward it. From the late 1600s to, let's say, 1776, um, you can bring it forward to 1860 and, and talk about the Civil War, hmm. and you know, which who knows better, the local people or um, a central authority? You could bring it to today, um, well, and so absolutely, in, here in the United States, we get this from time to time: this argument about states' rights, um, or or sometimes what you'll hear is local control. I mean, even in education we get it where um schools will argue with like the school district, who's in control, the principal of the school mm. or the head honcho up at the the school district. Um and you know, we always want it as local as possible. And so what they're saying is for example that Washington DC cannot and should not micromanage since they don't know what's going on, you know, in your local community, wherever that may be, in Nebraska or wherever um the The colonists are kind of saying the same thing you know the parliament the king um they don 't have any more right to make laws for us here um than let 's say the mohawks and actually this is what Governor um, Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island said as early as seventeen fifty seven He said the King and Parliament have no more right to make laws for us than the Mohawks. Nothing could be more tyrannical than our um being obliged by acts of parliament to which we were not parties. In the making, and in which we were not represented, Mm. and so I think that's really the heart of all of this: Um, who's in control, who who has the right to to legislate for these colonies?
1: Absolutely, and I with the with the benefit of hindsight, of course, we we could say actually, it was always going to happen in some way, shape, or form that the distance was just so vast, and that the the sort of philosophical ties that bound the two countries were just not strong enough to actually have an integrated government that that was you know the the norm in Europe it just couldn't it couldn't happen it couldn't work I think what's particularly interesting though is that this sort of movement towards independence from what I'm reading it not only is it not universally popular in the colonies but really, you're you're coming down to a very small number of quite intellectually gifted men who are, some of them are very, very much aristocratic in their outlooks anyway. And you could pick them up, put them down in an English country estate and, you know, Washington uh, or Jefferson, for instance, I could see being completely comfortable um, in an English parliamentary debate and living the life of an English gentleman. And so there's there's very much a feeling that these are not men, well, Washington, Jefferson especially, are not men who are looking for anything like the French Revolution when they're doing this. They are They are essentially looking to replicate something similar to what they're used to in England with this hierarchy of gentlemen, gentlemen farmers, a bit of ancient Roman constitution thrown in and they're not looking for that kind of revolution. But then we throw into the mix men like um, Thomas Paine and I I don't know, potentially Samuel Adams seems that he's sort of a bit more of a, a sort of populist bent as well. Yeah. And so already there's this tension, isn't there, when they set the ball rolling
0: so, there's, there's, it's, there's an interesting book, and I wish I could remember the author. Now it's skipping my mind. It's called The Cousins' War. Uh-huh. Um, and he talks about how, you know, in England, you've got the Civil War, um, you've got the, the Puritans versus the Cavaliers. I hope I'm getting that right. Mm. And then um, these two groups come to the New World, and they settle the New World. You've got the Puritans um, up in New England. And then you've got kind of this cavalier, aristocratic bent down in the southern area, of mm. South Carolina, Virginia, and um, so there's definitely that in the mix. Um, and I think you're right. It eventually, at some point, these colonies were going to break away. Mm. Um, they were getting. I mean they there were far more populated than say Canada was at the time. Yeah. Um there's different mixtures of peoples coming from different parts of Europe. There's places in Pennsylvania where, you know, you could have grown up and lived your whole life and only spoke German, for example. Mm. Um
1: and there was a lot of a there... lot of immigration as uh, emigration from Scotland and the Highlands yeah. into the colonies as well. Um Exactly. And and there was a lot of um uh, military activity around also the, um, Irish as well, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I'm fairly sure I came across a couple of small engagements where there were, um, Highlanders on the British side and then Irish on the militia side. So it's, it's, yeah. it's definitely an internationalist flavor to the, even to the early colonies. It's not homogenous, is it?
0: No, no, it's not. And, um, the, and and you really touched on it that you know Washington Jefferson, um, a lot of these Southerners very much could have fit into that kind of English aristocratic um, lifestyle. In many cases, that's what they were trying to reproduce mm. here in the United States. But then you've got and and you pit it perfectly. You kind of got this populist kind of groundswell from people like Sam Adams um, and others who kind of, you know, he's very much a, a much more radical revolutionary um, than even his cousin John Adams was. Um, John Adams is definitely much more of the um, the establishment. Mm. Um, and then so there they're, you've got these tensions already in the society. And it's definitely, you know, sometimes today we look at the Revolutionary War period and we say, well, you know, everybody wanted freedom and all that. No, there's probably about one third of the people were pro-independence, you know, give or take, probably a third were anti-independence. And then there was probably a third who just were like, you know what, as long as I got my beer and I've got food in my stomach and I can mm. feed my kids or whatever, I, I don't care one way or the other. So it's kind of the way it is today, really,
1: yeah. in but some ways. Let, let's let pick up on that, that middle that middle group, they're making a not not important point here. I mean, if you are, um, you know, an average citizen in this period, life could be really brutally hard. You know, Jefferson, yeah. for instance, is a very rich man. You know, for him, the the consequences of loss, okay, potentially he loses his property. But the reality of the rules of war of the time, potentially, it, it's not so serious. But But the average life for a lot of the colonists and for a lot of the British citizens, if you're outside the aristocracy, it was very, very hard. And so anything that imperils your food supply, which isn't always easy to get, that's not something that you're willing to support on abstract principle always, unless you've got a really good good reason for doing it.
0: Exactly. There, you know, it's it's always... It's all kind of always say it's, you know, it's fun and games for us to sit here and talk about these abstract ideas. Mm. But for the people in the day, these are real concrete decisions that have real concrete consequences.
1: And some of them Um, are are horrific because there's an account I've read uh, after Howe, I think it's uh, Lord Howe, has maneuvered uh, Washington's army out of um, New York. And so Washington's moving back and retreating. And then there's quite a lot of propaganda about damage the British do to the countryside as they advance. But the reality is even a friendly army moving through friendly or neutral territory, it uses up a lot of food, a lot of supplies. It disrupts the countryside. It's a major event to have even a friendly army in this period pass through you. So if you are trying desperately not to jump one way or the other this is very difficult because you're in a situation where both sides might well just simply you know commandeer for I think it was colonial script wasn't it that, um, mm-hmm. that was introduced and the British had how actually had quite a lot of ready capital that he could use um, yeah. so in some ways Howe and the British were quite lucky for certain periods they had quite a lot of cash that they could exchange for goods so yep. this middle group of colonists didn't have to be quite as badly antagonized by the British as you might think um, yep. and when we get to it I mean it's one thing that struck me is that Lord Howe he's a bit of a strange chap and he clearly doesn't want to be in this war when he's in it and and one of his his big bonuses in his strategy is this hearts and minds approach as we'd call Mm -hmm. it of not engaging in atrocities of paying as much as you can to the locals and to see can I actually flip a lot of the support back from the rebels and the populists and or at least push them into neutrality enough to chisel away the popular support for the rebellion so it's clear that even at the time there was an awareness that this is not a 100% uprising by everyone.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely not. And the the group sizes, you know, of about a third, a third, a third, those are going to shift over time. Hmm. And so by about 1781, it's not quite a third. There's definitely more people have jumped on the bandwagon um, of Washington and the secessionist movement because, well, you can kind of feel it in the air, And, you know, I jokingly say everybody supports a winner, um, but not so much jokingly that, you know, people are going to support a winner. Hmm. Um, The French weren't going to come in in 1776 and help these guys out because why should they? (laughs) If if the Americans lose, um, the Americans, well, they'll probably just go back to the way things were. But the French are sitting there saying, wait a minute, we live next door to these guys. (laughs) If we upset the British – You know, we just lost a war against them called the Seven Years War or the French and Indian War, depending on where you're talking uh, Uh. about the engagements. But uh, they're like, you know, what? we're not in any position to go down that path again. And so by the late part of the war, the last year or two, a couple of years, you're going to get now the French coming in. um, You're going to get more support as it kind of gains momentum that, hey, maybe this is doable, mm. but, you know, they didn't have local supermarkets like we do now. Um, they didn't walk around with their iPhones. Um, you know, they didn't have the same kind of conveniences of life that even, you know, maybe just the average person has today. Mm. Uh, and you could have been Thomas Jefferson, but you know, your, your standard of living, um, was far less than, let's say, the average American today.
1: Oh, unquestionably. Uh, and I think that's, that's particularly interesting when you look at the armies themselves. We always, you know, we know Valley Forge was particularly unpleasant. But leaving that aside, you know, army life to us back then struck us as absolutely horrific. Yeah. But if you were actually from the period, to be honest, this was not the worst life you could choose by, by a long stretch.
0: That's you know? correct. And, and, and that's something that I always try to tell students when we're talking about any period is that often we're looking back and we're saying, oh, it was horrific. But it was horrific compared to what? Mm. You know, um, and so if you're a soldier at this point, well, you know, life is pretty hard, period. Um, the, you know, it's not like you're getting vaccines for things and they don't have the same kind of uh, medical care we do. And so life was definitely tough no matter what.
1: Exactly, um, and I think
0: that's that's true up through past the industrial revolution up until you know maybe about nineteen hundred or so um you know so when you're in the industrial revolution even as as horrific mm. as some of the the um people's lives were if you were living you know i don't know in London maybe or Liverpool or Manchester, one of these these big industrial cities mm. um, and, and life was definitely tough, but again compared to what. It's it's just a different kind of tough, I guess, is what I'm saying. Absolutely, um, it's it's just a different kind of bad. Um, I, it's it's you know, which kind of bad do you want? Bad curtain number one, or <laughs> curtain number two. Well, they're both kind of crappy. So I guess I'll just you know, pick whatever. It's it's just and so the same thing here with these soldiers. Um, if it, yeah yeah, you're at Valley Forge, that's a particularly bad winter, uh, no doubt, um, but. You know, I always wondered, why did they stick around? Mm. Why did they stick with it? Well, I think it's partially because as bad as it was, it wasn't quite, it was maybe worse than normal, but not like coming from my lifestyle to that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that's interesting. I mean, we, we haven't touched on Britain yet. and I'll, I'll just briefly go on to that because it kind of links into that. When you're looking at Britain in this period, this is not the Britain that we see today. You know, this is not the Britain um, that's the cartoon of bowler hats and suits and things like that. This was uh, a semi, semi-wild country in many ways. Um, the road network was primitive. Life was very harsh for most people. Um, in some parts of the country, food was desperately short. Um, conditions probably hadn't changed much since the early 1600s. There was a very small aristocracy that exercised just disproportionate power, and there was limited social advancement. There's a very small middle class as well. Um, So you've got the rise of these aristocrats who are sponsoring the great works of art that you see, the great estates. But for the most people this is not a reality they're ever involved with unless they're a servant on those estates and this this lack of food uh it's a real problem in the pre-modern age people don't realize that so much of the pre-modern world is agrarian it's when's the next harvest where is the next fish uh catch coming in and how is it going to get to me before it goes off and so Britain has this problem that it has a semi-growing population and its food supply is not keeping up. And men like uh, Thomas Malthus famously propose, well, this is just the law of nature. Populations will always slightly exceed the food supply and eventually it will result in a die-off and rebalancing. And in the pre-modern era, this actually carries a lot of weight, this idea. And so if you are a British statesman, you must have some level of awareness that if you can't feed your population, you can't mobilise armies, you can't have taxation, you can't do your public works, and, you know, there is the spectre that you will fall from power somehow, probably not to a popular revolution, but you might be forced out somehow. Yeah, um, You know, ministries did get, get turfed out for being inept, and you know hunger riots were one thing that that would disturb the peace and lead to that and so the great the great trick that europe does during this period is to expand out of europe to seize food sources around the world right? you know that's that's and essentially america here for the british represents this great world of resource and opportunity and from their point of view and Spanish and French as well, nobody lives there because the Native yeah. Americans don't count, you know? Yeah. And and you get these unpleasant ideas like, well, if they were, um, uh, I suppose they'd say, real people, they would have improved this bounteous Garden of Eden that they'd lived in, and they didn't. So therefore, it falls to us to do. And that's that's obviously quite an unpleasant attitude, but that's that's what the... The colonies were set up against the backdrop of that these slithers of land were there to be exploited, and to set up trade networks and provide the raw materials that places like Britain or France or Spain needed to cope with these growing populations. And out of that, they can deploy these really revolutionary armies because the type of British army we're going to look at in this period it's sort of. It's a mix of old fashioned, but it's also quite revolutionary in its way because it, it's a big change from the old Civil War ones that you see with pikes and muskets and things like that. This is an army that has moved over to proper flintlock muskets, and it's got this new style of discipline that it's it's used to devastating effect on the battlefields of Europe. You know, you are talking about the the year of great victories that. John uh, John Churchill, the first Duke of Marlborough, wins um, at places like Malfakete and Ramilles and things against the French. And this whole new era of scientific discovery and scientific warfare is enthusing this army. So this army sees itself as a, a professional force with really good officers. And then some of it is out there on these frontiers as it sees it, you know defending the colonists who are there to grow food and chop down trees and produce cotton or whatever for manufacture. And the army is there to protect its people because it sees them as British. They are, at this point, British. You know, the army is their army and the enemies are the French and the Native Americans and the Spanish. And so it's it's over there. And suddenly, of course, it has to deal with this kind of explosion
0: Yeah, and that was actually one of my questions that I had was um, the British Army. What kind of um, kind of force were the Americans actually up against? Because you know sometimes here um, you're going to get this somewhat of an idea of uh, kind of bumbling leadership, Mm. out of touch, um, you know. But I have a feeling that they're more professional than maybe um, your eighth grade. History book might
1: have um, made it sound I, I think that's right I think one of my pet hates uh, in life is almost anything Mel Gibson has made as a film uh, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously the very famous one is the patriot yeah and and that is i I don't know. I don't know how popular it is over there. But I I get the feeling that Somewhat. The, the, the ideas it espouses there about what the British were and how they worked are probably something that a lot of people might have in yeah. mind. You know, sure. that the, these are somehow... A lot of them are very stupid. They're only there as extras to be shot down by some clever snipers. The officers mm-hmm. are all fairly... Um, I, I suppose, weak aristocrats who shouldn't be in their positions. Um, yeah. And that the only way the British do anything is just by moving in and burning things and being cruel. And, and that's that's not how the British Army operated at the time. Uh, it was a very complicated um, entity. And when we're talking about the British Army... Don't forget, that's a huge institution that's spread out around the world at the time. Yeah, you know. You, so what we're really looking at is well, the army that's in Europe and the army that's in America, and and in a way they're slightly culturally distinct because a lot of the the American troops there are actually American American born. You know, they've enlisted in the ranks and they are. In the colonies, you know, these are people who own land in the colonies, who have families there, and they are often on garrison duty, essentially. Um, And there are a few of them that are pretty good soldiers, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and there are a few of them that are pretty dreadful soldiers. There are, as with every army, there are some dishonest quartermasters who are on the take. There are some officers who aren't very good at their jobs. Um, and, and there are a couple of British uh, colonels I can think of that are particularly... Um, it, it's unfortunate they were appointed. <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, yeah. Especially for the men that they had to lead. Um, and, and these officers, wherever you were as a British soldier, your officers were almost certainly, they would bought their commission into the army. And that was a mark of a gentleman. But it it doesn't mean that they were necessarily stupid. The the purchase of commission was actually, part of it is to provide a pension for the officer. So you buy your commission, you pay £500 for this commission. You do, say, seven years, ten years service. You sell your commission on again. You get that money back. You can use it again in civilian life. You know, it, it... it's a nice earner and it's also it's tied you to your regiment you know you you only advance by purchasing commission again but you you can only do it up to certain ranks in certain periods there are certain bits where you have to succeed on merit and you have to do minimum service times anyway and a lot of these officers they've soldiered in europe um, or they've read about the european wars they're aware of the developments of new kinds of musket drill of fighting in different ranks and things like this so they would see themselves as sort of fairly serious professionals um and any officer if they're a good officer and there are some really really good british officers at this period the same as there are some really great american ones Mm -hmm. you you see yourself as responsible for the lives of your men and and that comes that comes across very clearly with um one of the aristocrats, um, I can't remember his name, but he's Lord Percy, uh, and he he is quite clearly a, a fantastically good soldier. It, it is unfortunate that he is the man who was sent to relieve the expedition to Lexington and Concord after it has turned into a disaster. Yeah. Um, you know, when, actually, if he'd been commanding it, I think it would have been a very different kind of engagement. But but this army it it is a colonial garrison army and it's only later on that it begins to be reinforced by what it considers the home forces um so then you get what are the the great county regiments the sort of backbone of the army start appearing and these are these are from places like kent and essex and places like that and they're they're regular soldiers um like any soldier, they will follow their orders as far as makes sense to them. Um, they are tough men. A lot of these guys, uh, you know, are, are from backgrounds of agricultural labor and mining. Um, they're physically fairly fit and tough. But they're coming into this environment that, that they're just unprepared for. You know, if, if yeah. you live in Britain, there's nothing to prepare you for uh, campaigning in Virginia. instance it's it's completely yeah and 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 places like tennessee are completely outside your world experience so you're you're asking these people to do something they've never quite done before and and they're not quite sure how to do it they have this idea they they know that they're up against an enemy who is demonstrating a lot more competence than they're expecting because mm-hmm. when when this all starts, the the idea of these troops is going from when well, you're there to protect the colonists who are your people from the French and Native Americans to oh suddenly the people that you've said hello to in the street every day, on <laughs> yeah they're now your enemies. Um, yeah, you know you've been protecting um, Joe and buying things from his store. Uh, and now Joe might appear in a window one day and try and shoot you in the back. Yeah, and that's hard for a soldier. I think you know t- if you look at it today, um, American and British troops in places like Fallujah, for example. You know, how do you know which of these civilians that you're you're dealing with is actually going to turn out to be an insurgent? And what?
0: Yeah, it's you- definitely a uh, psychological. <laughs> it messes with your mind. Mm. You know, I mean, you're walking down the street. These people are friendly, but are they really friendly? Do they really like me? I don't know, and I can't imagine having been a, a soldier put in that situation.
1: Mm. Um, and it's it's very difficult. I and mean, the the classic incident is, of course, the um, oh, what's it called? The a Boston Massacre, I think. I think you call it uh-huh. in the. So you, so you have this group of soldiers, and I think it's it, it's someone like Sam Adams or someone like that who yep. actually defends them eventually at trial. It's his actually, it's
0: his cousin John Adams, John Adams, <laughs> yeah, second president of the United States, who actually um, does defend them, mm. um, which is interesting. But yeah, that that whole thing was was um, just a bad situation
1: turned really bad (laughs) well absolutely because of course it's easy for us to say you know with the benefit of hindsight you know someone should have done this or that or the other the reality is if you're a british officer and you've got say four or five men with you and there's a crowd of 20 people and the insults are flying and stones are starting to rain down on you what do you do you know you you can't call in um You can't call in a Humvee or um, a chopper to evacuate. This is not the period that you can do that. You know, and this is warfare at this time. It's really physical, really up close.
0: It's very personal. Mm. And to sit there and, you know, they're throwing snowballs at them that had uh, been packed with ice and stones and whatnot. I mean, man, just getting hit with a snowball Mm. is not a whole lot of fun. I mean, unless you're having snowball fights. But even then, you know. I, it's much more you'd rather be on the giving end than on the receiving end um Absolutely. and to be in this situation where you're surrounded by these people it's dark it's cold um you know they're they're throwing insults at you they're throwing snowballs at you they're throwing other stuff at you um and then somebody says fire
1: mm.
0: um you know it's
1: it's easy to see why that that turns out the way it does Oh, absolutely. And I think it, that sort of feeds into the early feelings of the British government when it mm-hmm. when it has to come up with a response to this. It can't see it as we can as an inevitable movement to independence. It sees it as there are small groups of, you know, essentially civilian insurrectionists who are complaining about taxes and are lawful authority. And our soldiers have been, you know, insulted. They've had rocks thrown at them. Uh, British property and shipping has been attacked. You know, if you're the government, any government will inevitably probably come to a similar response to the early British response, which is, you know, they say, "Okay, well, if this is what we think it is, which is a small group of troublemakers in Pennsylvania, send in the troops, make a quick, hard response hit the ringleaders before it spreads, and that'll be the end of it. No one no one was thinking that the other thirteen colonies were going to actually throw in with what seemed like some local disturbances here.
0: Yeah, it does seem like it's very much <clears throat> um kind of confined to Massachusetts and Boston and you know, you've got the massacre and then you've got the Tea Party Um, You know, you've got the Sons of Liberty there kind of stoking the flames of of revolution, if you want to call it that. Um, And it does seem very local up until um, the British troops go to Concord and Lexington. And then it's – that's when it kind of blows up. Mm. And I don't think the British um, – I'm pretty sure they didn't mean for that to happen. Um, I think, like you said, you know, they just thought, hey, we can capture a couple ringleaders. We can just end this ridiculousness and be done with it and then next thing you know um the whole north american uh eastern seaboard erupts into um uh, insurrection mm. and um i think it's it's definitely a situation where things got out of control and um the british kind of you know you kind of see this in history when you're trying to you're trying to kind of keep your hands on the reins so to speak but then, at some point, you just lose control, and it's you're just going along for the ride.
1: Well, I think that's that's absolutely right because when we when we talk about Concord and Lexington, I mean these are seminal events. You know, they, these are what start it in in yeah. a meaningful way. And you you look at it, and from the British side, you've got this commander, Lieutenant General Thomas Gage, yeah, and he has his, he has fairly clear orders. He's told secure Boston. Disperse the rebels, and that's you know fairly easy. But he knows that potentially some replacements are arriving from Britain, and he's going to be uh, superseded from command. And like any general, well, he doesn't really want to go out being known as the man who you know failed in yeah. his mission. You know, which was keep order in the colonies. And he he doesn't really believe that. The British have actually taken this threat seriously enough. And it's come, come through quite clearly that he, he was of the view that if this was going to be done, it had to be done with a big force and a strong military response, or it wasn't worth the bother. Because the British forces, they were really quite small at this time. And Gage has only got a few thousand troops around Massachusetts. You know, so he hasn't got a lot. That's not a lot to work with. It it, it sounds like a lot compared to you know what the um, Samuel Adams and the Lexington Militia can pull together. But Mm. you know, it actually, when we're looking at the areas involved, there aren't really any great roads. So most campaigning is tied to the rivers, and that's that means he's got. A few thousand troops to hold down the whole area you know and what's he going to do with those but he has this notice from his spies that the from the sources i've read at least um that the rebels have got three 24 pound siege cannon that the british were afraid they could use to close boston to shipping yeah now this is interesting because the sources i've read said well these weren't British guns. You know, the British didn't have those in North America. So they were almost certainly sent by the French before the events actually started. And someone um, like Samuel Adams was probably involved in actually laying the groundwork for this, Mm -hmm. this long before it became a populist movement. So I think probably that busts one of those myths that this sort of blew up overnight out of nothing, where... Actually, a lot of of people had already been pushing for it. Definitely. The groundwork had been
0: laid. um, I mean, because you get uh, the Congress of Albany talking about um, a plan for a union Mm. um, from between the colonies for, you know, a couple of decades before all of this. Um, You know, you get the Stamp Act problems and everything that starts in the 1760s. And so there's definitely – A lot of the groundwork had been laid. Um, Mm. It just – it seems like when the British press the button, that's when it blows up. But that – the I guess you could say the gunpowder had already been put into place. The fireworks had been set. The fuse was there, and they were just waiting for somebody to light it. And unfortunately for the British, they kind of lit it um,
1: at Concord. Well, they did. Um, and, and we have this. This is an interesting military choice when, when you actually start looking into, OK, well, what are the British going to do? They choose this chap, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, um, instead of Lord Percy, who was just far superior. And Smith is just known to be inept. This is not a guy that you would normally entrust with these kind of missions. Um And he does it really badly. You know, he's facing off against Captain Parker of the Lexington Militia, who's, you know, a very professional veteran of the French and Indian Wars. Um, And Smith clearly doesn't quite know what to do. And he thinks, well, I will send, you know, some troops forward and disperse the Americans and that will make them run because no one sensibly would want to stand up in a pitched engagement against the British, surely. And of course, it doesn't quite work out like that. The light troops go forward under Major Pitkern. Um, and then this sort of confusion happens, doesn't it? No one quite knows who fires.
0: And, and the funny thing about all this is that there's this idea um, that, you know, we just send some troops, these, these settlers, these colonists, they're just going to disperse. But I think one thing they, they have underestimated. And it's, I've, I talk about this with my students sometimes sellers who come out into these, these regions, um, and settle, there's some tough mm. people. <laughs> I'm not going to go. I mean, I, I, when I was a kid, I was a boy scout and I liked camping and stuff and that was yep. all fun and games, but that's because I knew, oh, okay, it's two days of this. And then I can go back home and sleep in my bed and mm. have my air conditioning and my, my television and all that, you know, these people, um, I mean, they're they're going out into what is essentially enemy territory, if you want to call it that, hmm. and because they're the enemy, and they're trying to take land from people, um, and the people that are there don't like them being there, and they're like, "Well, I don't care if you like me or not. I'm going to take this land from you. I'm stronger than you, and you know, if you want to fight, let's fight." I mean, these are people really willing and ready to fight. Exactly, um,
1: and and they're can... not. They're not this. Americans today. <laughs> well, yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> you can see this on the, on the British side that they are quite surprised. You know, they, they yeah. are not expecting. And they have they've sent forward their light companies who are traditionally supposed to be some of their better troops. You know, you don't get into the light company unless you're pretty good. But it it pretty quickly becomes clear that these guys are quite rusty from garrison duty that their officers don't know what they're doing anyway because they give up these key positions that the rebels easily occupy and you know they get absolutely hammered uh, and it's it's quite shocking for them and i think this this has like some big repercussions because then when the british generals to replace um gage actually come in they have to restore the british reputation after this you know yeah you, the british have thrown away the sort of golden golden opportunity to say well we're the professionals we win wars we start well we finish well and yeah. you know this lexington completely nails that um <laughs> nails that yeah. completely
0: and that kind of gives um impetus to others in the colonies that you know if you were on the fence and you were kind of like, well, I don't know, um, yeah, it sounds kind of cool to be independent, but uh then I mean, you're talking <laughs> about the British, and then they lose this thing and you're like, "Whoa, hey, wait a minute," mm. and so that's gonna always help recruiting um because everybody, like I said earlier, everybody loves you know being on the side of the winner um and so yeah it's it's they are throwing away the initiative, so to speak, they've got this golden chance they could have nipped this thing in the bud mm. and um they don't and the rest as they say is history
1: <laughs> yeah and i think that it's an interesting the other interesting thing that comes out of this is this phrase the the shot that rang out round the world um and that that's a lovely piece of um military propaganda, propaganda. it's great <laughs> it, it it's nice it's a nice myth um and i think from what you you saying
0: are you saying that the people in India didn't hear this shot? Is that what you're saying? That's
1: exactly um, what I'm going to say, yeah, the people I'm,
0: in China were like, "Shot, what shot? What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly
1: and i think I think what you said earlier about well, this was a huge boost to the American colonies, this shot it did ring out through the colonies. there's no question about that
0: yeah
1: but what's interesting to me is that the British government of the time, and we haven't we haven't really dived into them. They are not hearing this shot, really. And the reason they're not hearing it is that the British government is essentially King George III, who is obviously, you know, the monarch. But his power is exercised in Parliament and it's exercised by Lord Germain. Uh, And Lord Germain is absolutely, when you read about this guy, he's absolutely useless in so many ways Except his, he is known to be a gifted political operator in Parliament, passing legislation. So if you want a legislative programme passed, this is your guy. But basically, the British government, in from what I can see in this period, was obsessed just with the business of being the British government. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it doesn't have another purpose. It's there. <laughs> it, it's there as an old boys club. It's there to dispense pensions and patronages. It's there to further the aristocracy. This American thing, as far as they're concerned, is just a minor American thing. And yeah. if the local commander isn't up to it, well, he's he seems to be whinging a bit. He's probably making excuses. Send out a proper army; it'll be fine. You know, let's get that to the real business of government. And yeah. and so this this shot does not wake them up at all. It, it's far from it. The British government is still very complacent, I think.
0: And that might be um, another part of their downfall. Mm. Is is and that was actually a question that I did have. Um, what what is the British idea of King George? I mean, over here, you kind of get him as incompetent, mad, kind of crazy uh tyrannical. it just depends you know um who you're reading or whatnot. Yeah. um but there there seems to be a lot of focus on King George and my on um, the third and my question is you know what do the British historians have to say about King George and his um Leadership, if you want to call it that, during uh, during this time period.
1: Wow, well, that that's an interesting question. Um, it's a very mixed bag, depending on who you ask. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I think most people would say he wasn't very effective. I don't think you'd find any British historian saying that this was one of the top ten British kings or anything like it.
0: Um, We're not gonna get the, the musical uh King George the Third here anytime soon. No, I guess. no,
1: but you but there is a lot of <laughs> sympathy actually. It's it's interesting to say that. there's a lot of sympathy, especially if you watch films like The Madness of King George, the mm-hmm. the view is is that this was a fairly decent person, um, who was not particularly gifted. Um he's part of this dynasty of Georges, from George the First to George the Fourth. Uh, and he's German, essentially. In in all but um, name, these are German kings. This is a line of German kingship. They have possessions in Hanover. This is where those German mercenaries come from. It's not that um, he just randomly picks them. Uh, his his worldview is therefore, like his his grandfather and his father, that his position is slightly shaky in a way, you know, you've had the great uprisings of the Stuart House in Scotland that, you know, nearly nearly turf out the Hanoverian dynasty. So the, the view of this guy is that he has to be a bit careful. Um, if he doesn't want to end up ousted from power in some way, he has to demonstrate that he has control over Parliament. He has to demonstrate he um, matches sort of the ideals of kingship and um, modern gentleman and he has to as well play off the various factions against each other he has to watch out for his german interests Um, and he's very conscious as a king of his own dignity and he's also very interested in things like farming ironically so you know he's known to have um, a sort of paternalistic world view and his interest in agriculture he wasn't known Uh, to history as a particularly tyrannical king you know if you look at some of the absolutely horrific british kings you know you wouldn't put him up there um he wasn't if you contrasted him say with edward the first um not the braveheart version again i'll bash mel gibson whenever i get (laughs) the chance (laughs) um he's definitely not like Longshanks. no exactly you you look at um Edward I, and that was a pretty hard, tough, ruthless king, not someone to mess around with. Um, And George I isn't like that. Um, But Edward Edward I, whatever else you think of him and what he did in Scotland or Wales, was very military gifted, very hands-on, very, very practical, and very involved in legal reform. And this isn't something that George III is interested in. He's not what you would say is a visionary. You know, this is a, a fairly sort of solid, unimaginative guy. Um, so the idea that he he could come up with the idea of something like Louis XIV does, of a grand court with a central, shining, you know, supreme monarch, divine right of kings guy. Uh, that's not this guy at all he's just not got the imagination for it
0: and i think unfortunately the americans kind of put him in a rough spot too keeping all that in mind um you know they have the first continental congress and when i teach u.s history I always tell students look um if you're going to have the first and second congress the continental congress a congress is not a parliament mm. a congress is a a meeting at least in the language of the day representatives ambassadors from separate sovereign nations Mm. and so if the congress issues a declaration or issues a petition um to the king and then you're wondering well why did he totally ignore it Mm. well because if he accepts it then he's accepting their um legitimacy
1: absolutely And so he
0: he can't he can't accept that um and i think that's just an interesting thing you know when we talk about you're getting ready to do the or you've done the congress of vienna um, mm. and so that you know why is it called the congress of vienna because there are representatives from these independent states yeah um and so king george has no you know cuz students will be like well why did he just totally reject it and not even accept their their letters you know why didn't he mm. at least read it and see what they had to say well because he can't because if he yeah. does uh, he's lending to their legitimacy, and he's—you know—we can call him all sorts of names if we want, but he's at least smart enough to realize uh, I'm damned if I do and I'm damned if I don't. Yeah. But if I'm going to be damned, I might as well just do it—not—not not accept the letter and be damned anyways.
1: Exactly, and it, it's interesting. Continental Europe, of course, was another really important consideration for him and the British now, because. Yeah. At this point, they're seeing some armed uprisings, you know, they don't know how serious it is, but they are aware that they have become the top dog in Europe recently after the Seven Years' War. And that's made them a lot of enemies. You know, they they are worried, genuinely. It's one of the reasons they want to introduce this taxation and increase military presence in the colonies, yeah. is they are sure that the French will eventually start another war. You know, the British are diplomatically isolated. They don't have a lot of friends. And then they think, well, if we say yes to one of the colonists' big demands to being allowed to go over the Appalachians and expand westward, well, that's going to leave a lot of a scattered population very vulnerable to the inevitable future French assault. And it was just, no, we we can't allow that because then these colonies will be knocked over by the French one by one and we can't afford to defend. You know, it, it was difficult enough for the British to have a military presence in that narrow coastal strip. But yeah. imagine if the colonies had expanded out to the Midwest and then got involved in a war with France as well as the inevitable conflict with the Indian nations it was going to be tough for anyone to deal with that situation. And there would have been requests saying, well, why British troops never in, in this settlement to defend us. We're being raided by the French down in the South. Someone would have been saying we're being raided by the Spanish. Why are British troops never here? And, and with the best will in the world, you know, there's only so many troops that, that the British can actually put into these places.
0: Yeah. The British are basically in a no win situation. Mm. Um, and I, And I think that kind of lends to the idea that I, I don't like the word inevitable, um, hmm. but it was going to I mean, the colonies were going to break away you know at some point, yeah. um, either forcefully or um, peacefully some in some way, shape or form, they were going to get their independence, and so that's kind of leads me because we were just talking about Congress, and what is a Congress? That leads me to my my last real myth. And I don't know if you get it much in in Europe or in England, but certainly here. I and mean, that's the idea that the United States was a democracy, mm. at, at least from birth. And that's um, that's not what the founders um, created. Um, mm. What they were creating was a republic. And I mean, most of them, if not all of them, um, you did have you know people like Sam Adams who were the more radical mm. um, guys. But you, you get most of these guys calling themselves Republicans, and I don't mean um, Republicans like – as in the Republican Party, um, but as, as their kind of governmental philosophy was republicanism. Mm. Um, many of them felt um, that democracy was dangerous, um, and we talked about it in um, one of the final episodes in season one in my show um, where I talked about the the social – climate of the colonies Um, and so what was going on is that you had a lot of um, mixing a lot of drinking Um, people you know the lower classes you could go into a tavern and you'd see white and black people hanging out um, drinking Mm -hmm. together maybe engaging in other adult activities if you will Um, Mm -hmm. and the founders were definitely not (laughs) they were like "Eh, I don't think we want these people running the show Mm. Um, and so there is this This fear of the mixing of classes, um, of debauchery, um, you know, all of it they saw as bad. And and, um, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but um, Americans at the time definitely drank a lot of alcohol. And, um, you know, it was just, I mean, you weren't going to go buy soda pop at the convenience store. So, you know, and you didn't want to drink water because that was probably disgusting and bad too.
1: Absolutely. Small, <laughs> um, small beer and gin were very popular for the British, so, you know. Yeah, that's what
0: they were doing, you know. Um,
1: so when we look
0: at the United States, there's a quote from James Madison where he says, um, where a majority are united by a common sentiment and have an opportunity, the rights of the minor party become insecure. Mm. And so what he's describing is basically what's called the tyranny of the majority. Mm. Um and that's something that that the Americans are are worried about. They they're, they talk about it. They're they're worried about this idea that um, you can get um, a government that is tyrannical, um, even though it's doing what the majority wants. Mm. Uh, and so there was not a democracy. That's going to come about more. Um, and we just talked about that in in season two with Andrew Jackson. Mm. And. Um, He's all about this idea of what the people want. Now, well, at least he propagandizes that he is. Um, <laughs> I'll let the the listeners decide whether or not he was really about that. Um, he also gets painted by the Whig Party as uh, being King um, King Andrew Jackson the first. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, in the in the American system, it was not designed to be um, a democracy, and so. You're going to have one portion of, of the federal government or the general government that is democratic, and that's the House of Representatives. And that was designed to kind of be like the House of Commons. Hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you vote directly for your representative, um, but you had indirect appointments. Yeah. So you had like the Supreme Court, um, the Senate. The Senate was um, originally um, – the Senate members were appointed by each state's legislature. Hmm. Um, you did not vote for them. And the idea was that okay, you voted for the House of Representatives, that would be like the fiery House, but then you had the Senate, which would be more reasoned and more statesmanlike, um, because they weren't they didn't have to answer directly to the people. Um, but you also have the Electoral College, hmm. and so all of these things are designed um, with with this idea of not being a direct democracy. Um, so there is all that good stuff, but. What? I thought like man we got to
1: at least get that in. Well I think that's interesting because that from the British point of view today the 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 sort of the simple view of the revolution is like I said at the beginning you know George Washington comes in declares independence saves everyone um and then the Americans make a bigger thing out of it than than we can explain. Um and 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 part of this is this idea that it was a fight for um democracy. And I think a lot of modern British people do assume it, it was like that. Yeah. And and what actually we're looking at is this was not as new an idea as people might think. Because a lot of these, these debates were actually, you could go back to the English Civil War um, and you can listen to debates like the Putney debates and the arguments mm-hmm. of the levellers who are making just these points that there should be representation yeah. uh, in some kind of democratic representative government Um, no one no one apart from the extreme levelers ever argue for direct direct democracy but there is this view that there should be some kind of if you are subject to law you should have some kind of stake in its making Uh, and Mm -hmm. you should have some way to have your at least your property rights and your property interests represented and respected and that that strand is definitely there, and it feeds into the early, early colonies with the migrations. But it it hasn't gone away in England. You know, there are, and for government purposes at this time, we are really talking England here because, yeah. you know, Scotland and and Wales didn't have a meaningful way of influencing power in Westminster. Um, some of the Scottish aristocrats were quite powerful in the house of lords and they owned estates in ireland so there was that sort of aristocratic connection but the reality is that democratic pressure it's very much an english middle class event and you get people like the philosopher edmund burke who you know says famously that you elect a representative and that representative is there to represent your interests um even if that is not what you have voted for. So the sort of view here is that if you're elected to Parliament, you are supposed to represent the best interests of the people who elected you and the country as a whole, even if that's not democratically popular. So, and and that's still, even today, that debate goes on in the British Parliament. Brexit is the classic (laughs) example. You know, you have these MPs who are absolutely terrified of saying, well the popular vote it it's just awful you know it, it was a vote based on what looks like russian interference a lot of fairly dishonest campaigning on both sides um and some fairly wait 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 dishonest campaigning yeah it what? it's shocking no. in this day and age that never happens no i know <laughs> there, there was a very famous um uh big red bus that went around the country with Um, the phrase if you vote leave 350 million pound an extra week for the nhs you know and that's like well you know (laughs) whenever a politician finds that much money i'm always skeptical Uh, but but you have these politicians who are very aware that they've lost a popular vote but probably not for the right reasons and that this vote is going to be damaging And, and under that classic formula of of Burke and the old the older constitutional settlements of the sort of mid eighteen to late eighteen hundreds, they should really be saying, "Well actually thank you we've we've heard what the electorate would like. We will now consider the best way to either take this forward or actually it's not in the best interests of the nation, and that's what they're supposed to be doing, but they they can't really do that. The, 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 the conventions that the British system relies on are just not coping with the modern age. And it's, it's if you actually sit down and look at the, the similarities between the two governments of this government of Lord Germain during the Revolution, uh, during the War for Independence and the modern government, it's strikingly similar that they are both unable to grasp the philosophical enormity of what is going on and they neither is able to produce an agile response and i think when you look back at lord germain's government if you'd said to him well this is a war for for democracy i it wouldn't have made any sense to them they just would not have seen it in those terms
0: and the same for washington or jefferson or um, any of the Americans would have said what well, a war for what are you talking about?
1: Mm. Um, no, no, that's not what they were. That's not what they were about. Not at all. No, and I think for Germaine, I think that the reading is very much this this reading of sources I've done is that their other big terror is the loss of Canada. They fear that these are actually Americans who are not just seeking to rebel from parliamentary authority but that these people are only doing it really a for monetary reasons and b to gain canada and that's that is terrifying to the british and and then there's this added worry of the french coming in and so for the british it's not about an idea of we're going out there to suppress the heroic democrats it it, is much more an idea of these people are creating anarchy and they're doing it to get rich and to try and take Canada and the French will come in and take advantage of that and that's what I think is one of these strange sort of tipping points of this war which is when the French come in it absolutely galvanizes the British because up until now that they there is a point I think probably after is it probably Saratoga, Um, Mm -hmm. they can't win from this point really. I think militarily they're done and they know it. And they they are probably at this point willing to make some kind of peace. But as soon as the French come in, that's absolutely then off the table again. Because, you know, if it looks like they are only making peace because the French arrive to give military aid, well then it's all up for grabs. And The British suddenly face this nightmare situation from their point of view that they now have a hostile France opposite them. They have a hostile Spain fairly quickly soon after. They have a hostile Netherlands. Uh, They have this war in America that they're trying to to somehow keep a lid on and dream up these responses. And then they've got the Baltic League of Armed Neutrality, I think it was, And Mm -hmm. Russia. So Britain is suddenly gone from, well, this is a a small peripheral war to it's not going very well to, oh, my God, suddenly this is us against basically the main powers of the world on our own. And and this government, (laughs) it's it doesn't quite know what to do, because even even with the huge resources of the Royal Navy and the full mobilization of the British Army and the militia they know that they can't hold the line yeah. everywhere you know yeah. and and when it comes down to a choice of what are you going to choose are you going to defend the home island you know well you have to because if Britain is invaded the government will fall they'll be conquered by the french you know and no government can just give up on its own country in exchange for yeah. somewhere else so so they know they have to do that they don't quite have the naval resources to control the mediterranean and blockade the french and blockade mm. the americans they can't do all of That's this at the same time it's yeah it's just too much they're now in this world war and the the navy is supposed to be the british big strength and it's it can't be everywhere and yeah. it hasn't done well in america at, anyway during this war and it it's when we see this sort of pivot down to what's called the southern strategy when you know, the action very much moves away from the north down into the south. And that's not because I think the British thought they could win back all the colonies at this point. It's that they think maybe we can keep enough loyalists down in the south to keep some of the south. And that's vital to us because we can keep the West Indies. And this is this is great because a friend of mine once asked me, one. Well, why were the British so focused on the West Indies and not America? Because America's clearly more valuable. It's like well, now it not is. The, yeah,
0: not at the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not this is time. this is this is the big thing that that Britain obviously doesn't often acknowledge, especially a lot of modern British people are quite ignorant about how much of British wealth is generated in this period through the slave trade in the West yep. Indies. I mean, this is the goose that lays the golden egg that keeps Britain afloat, you know. And, yep. and certainly Britain didn't start slavery or invent it. But, but there is a definite period where the British are the absolute um, main runners of slaves across this um, Western passage. And, and it also gives them access to the sugar from there Mm -hmm. um it gives them access to rum which is you know it's an important commodity at this period Yep, and it has this other big benefit that if you want to go down to south america or if you want to make a run to india without going along the african coast uh, you will take your ships down to the west indies along the trade winds and then go down again and so the West Indies are basically Britain's gateway to a lot of the rest of the world in a way that North America just isn't. It's
0: Exactly. And it's funny because you're talking about slavery. Mm. Um, and I guess that's probably the last myth, actually, um, that I've got. And that's, you know, slavery was this is sometimes seen as the sin of the South, um, mm. that it's all the Southerners. It's the bad Southerners. And I think I might have said that earlier. Um, <laughs> But you know slavery wasn 't limited to the South, actually. Um, ships out of the North conducted trade in slaves mm. um, um they and the North is going to profit from slavery and um, all throughout the seventeen hundreds up into up until the Civil war mm. um, you know um yeah, most of New England abolishes slavery in seventeen eighty nine um, but they did retain their anti black laws. Mm. Um, Northerners continued to take part in the slave trade, and um, they still – you still had slaves in the north. Um, Even after 1789, you could find slaves in Connecticut as late as 1848. um, Mm. New Jersey even had – you could find slaves up until 1865, up until the the Civil War was over. Um, New York, for example, in 1790 had 21,000 slaves. Uh, There was 11,000 in New Jersey, um, 2,700 in Connecticut. Now, definitely these numbers, because I can hear somebody saying, yeah, but that's nothing compared to the South. And you're right. The South, it was by far, um, there was significantly larger numbers of slaves in, say, Virginia or the Carolinas. Um, No doubt about that. Um, But some of the most famous Northerners owned slaves, including um, at least at some points William Penn, John Winthrop, John Hancock, Benjamin Franklin, Hmm. um, and many Northerners um, who signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution did own slaves. Um, now, the United States ends the importation of slaves in
1: 1808.
0: Hmm. Um, but if you think that just by passing a law that's going to stop everything, then, um, you know, come on now. That's I mean, yeah, marijuana is illegal. But if I needed marijuana, I could probably get some in 30 minutes. You know,
1: disclaimer, <laughs> I mean, do not mention that to your employer. <laughs>
0: Exactly. But not that I I actually don't smoke anything. I actually don't even drink anything. I'm so Mm. I'm so lame. Um, Strong drink for me is iced tea and coffee. But, um, you know, I mean, they they, it's just because slavery or the slave trade is illegal Mm. um, doesn't mean it stops. Um, Many of the northerners who took part in the slave trade, they just switched over to the international slave trade. Mm. Um, But many of them also were kind of doing it, you know, on the on the sly there. Uh, engaging in smuggling
1: actually can I jump in on that because I said there is this really fascinating point and I wish I had the quote with me because when this declaration of independence is out and one of the reactions in Britain someone says something along the lines of quote it is interesting that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty and democracy among the owners of Negroes end quote and it it is very much seen as hypocritical. You know, there's this, well, you you produce this declaration of the rights of man and all these noble ideas, but you are still keeping large yeah. slave populations. And yeah. the, the British um, do the jump on this opportunity. They do um, offer slaves freedom and yeah. pardons, and they're quite happy to um, raise them as irregular units.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing. Um, you know, the these the founding fathers, if you want to call them that, are are taking baby steps forward. Mm. Um, it's it's going to be a while before um, you're going to get equality. Heck, I mean, do we even mm. see each other as equal today? I don't know. Um, you know, but but those are are definitely baby steps. Um, oh, just yeah. the idea that anyone would have even said that. Um, wow, we're all created equal, that's pretty revolutionary. Um, it, well, it,
1: it really was. I mean, there was that quote, wasn't there? I, I tremble for my nation for God is just or, yeah, you know, and, and they know. I think the smarter members of the founding father generation know that this is an issue that is going to cause problems down the line, yeah. this this tension yeah. at the heart of the Constitution even.
0: All of them, all of them. um bemoan the slavery you know it's it's almost i don't know almost like you're you're an addict mm. and you know you bemoan the fact that you're addicted to this substance but you know you you know you can't break away from it um yeah. jefferson amongst others you know condemned slavery and said you know it's something we need to get rid of um but you know it's my economic lifeblood how am i going to get yeah. rid of it it's it's far easier to to say it than of course than it is to do it um but oh. a lot of them also Thought that you know it's going to end anyways, um, and that's because they couldn't see the future, the cotton, the development of the cotton gin, and yeah. um, had that not happened, um, you know, maybe except let's say it happened thirty years later, hmm. um, you might have had this the ending of slavery um, because it just it wasn't really profitable anymore.
1: Absolutely, um, and, I, and think I think that that's, there, there's an interesting myth that that kind of comes out of this um which is this idea um that the british um then would go on and abolish slavery um straight away and th- it it wasn't quite like that the british had to take baby steps as well you know yep. th- they abolish it domestically um fairly early and if you are a slave who gets to britain it is automatic you are not a slave anymore because britain does not recognize Slavery is a legal status, but the slave trade itself is not illegal within the british empire no. and and it's not for a while until um i think, I think I want to say eighteen o seven or something that they begin to really crack down fairly unilaterally. Britain declares not only is slavery illegal in Britain um, it's illegal anywhere. the trade is illegal, and we will crack down on it hard and they they really do you know you see this immense british naval effort that's really hammering the slave trade um all the way up to the american civil war you can read accounts of ships seized in the middle passage and just condemned um and it's it's a sort of interesting historical counterfactual is what would have happened if say the war uh, the War of Independence hadn't happened, and if, you know, America had stayed with Britain until, say, 1830, for example, would slavery then have been a non-issue, perhaps? Would it have been abolished?
0: Yeah, it's it's again, kind of like I said, you know, without the cotton gin, if mm. you just have it come about 30 years later, you probably don't have slavery, and I think the same mm. thing there. If you'd have had those two things happen... Let's say the Gen gets developed around 1820. Mm. Let's say the Americans get their independence in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. Um, slavery is probably not an issue.
1: Yeah, and I think anymore. that that's really interesting because that's the other sort of great myth I come across when I look at this period and even some later periods is this idea that Britain was this industrial economic colossus and <laughs> – it it wasn't at this stage. It was powerful, um, sure, but it wasn't that much more powerful than, say, France. Um, okay, Spain was a bit a bit moribund and in decline, but even Spain wasn't that hugely far behind Britain, you know. And when the French and Spanish combine their fleets, at this stage they can put almost an equal number of ships out as the British, and so this idea that these are sort of simple american farmers who are fighting uh-huh. the, the the mass industrial machine it, it that w- that wasn't in place in britain yet no you know britain does have it it does have some factories and some mills sure. it does have some key advantages um but i think people overestimate um the gap between the military potential of the two countries at the time yeah you know because when you look at, at what washington actually does uh, uh, my reading of him is he's actually not that good as a field commander. He's not someone no. that you would say, oh, he's going to win every battle like Napoleon no. does in his early career. <laughs> but yeah. but this is a guy who is amazing as a leader of men. You know, yeah. if, if you want a commander in chief, this is definitely one of the greats in history, I think, of yep. just getting desperate people to do these things.
0: But, and he's good at learning on the job. Yeah. Oh, absolutely! And that's something that the best the best generals do, and I think you see in wars. You know, whether it's the French in World War One, um, every war, you know, those that first year or so, it's always it seems like the war either kills off the inept, or they get mm. fired, and then yeah, eventually uh, you do. And and Washington is able to survive because he's able to learn on the job. And mm. he figures things out. And you're right. He's a, maybe not tactically astute, mm. but he can lead men and, you know, get them to do things that they would normally not want to do. Yeah. And that's where he's fantastic.
1: Uh, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm endlessly impressed with Washington, actually, you know, and I've and, and got his picture up on the wall, you know. <laughs> um, and, and I think in terms of inspiration, he really saves the early... Early period of the revolution. There's there's no question that without him, I think if you put was it um, Horatio Gates, if that effort to have Washington replaced by Gates had succeeded, I don't think that things would have gone quite as well. I think I think he was one of those those people in history who was just in the right place when the right time. Yeah, exactly. And the British just never produced anyone like this you know there there is they don't have a massive economic lead you know if you put two men in a field with a musket in this period they're not that different from each other no. you know um so the british rely on their discipline to get up close and do these bayonet charges and that's yeah that's why this myth of these lumbering british comes about is that mm. it sounds stupid but the reality is if you put say um 400 um rebels as they were at that stage fairly poorly armed behind um some fortifications which is what washington has to do in the early period because they can't do the complicated maneuvers no matter how Mm -hmm. good a shot they are you know the british know that if they can get into bayonet range if they can take this fight close combat then the discipline and aggression of the professional soldier will make these people break unless there is exceptional leadership. And you see that from people like Nathaniel Green and uh, even Benedict Arnold, who I think <laughs> he gets a dreadful reputation. But, you know, when you actually look at the guy as a fighting commander, he He's was good. good. Yeah. Yep. and And that's why the British often come at people, bang, head on. It's because well sure we're going to take losses yeah absolutely and and that's just the life of the soldier but if we can get over those fortifications and then get into close combat that was a horrific experience i i said in the waterloo episode you did not want to actually have the angry highlanders in close combat you know (laughs) these these were big tough scotsmen you know they a lot of them are out from the highlands you know they're used to raiding between the clans you know their clan chiefs have joined up as their officers you know and there's this medieval honor cult for some of them and they're these brutal shock troops and at waterloo there's a point where they are outnumbered you know five six to one and the british line is cracking and then the the shouts go up and the highlanders pipes play in and they go in and it's it's an it must have been hell on earth and yeah. and you know these these regiments like this you know regiments like the irish the connaught rangers and people like that they might not be well led by the best officers like the americans i think clearly had the edge in their officer corps throughout this whole war yeah but the actual british fighting troops when they were going man for man they're tough. They are very tough. No it, doubt. It, it's a nasty proposition. And I,
0: I think the the where it breaks is that there is your right. There's better leadership on the side of the Americans. Mm. And the Americans are fighting on their home turf. Yeah. And fighting. You could at least propagandize that you're fighting for your home. You're on your turf. You're fighting for your own home. And, and those two things um, kind of seal the deal, so mm. to speak. Um, And like you said, by 1778, 79, after Saratoga, um, the British kind of know the game's up. Mm. Um, These guys aren't going to stick around. I mean, yeah, we could put military rule over the whole place, but great. What's that going to really achieve? We're just going to have guerrilla warfare. And it's just a matter of how can we extricate ourselves from this and not lose our honor.
1: Exactly. And and we often hear the Vietnam analogies, but I think this one really was for the British – a bit like Vietnam, where they're committed to this war that they can only win if they can convince enough of the locals to support them, and eventually okay. they can't do it in the end. And yep. and what comes, yep. what becomes very clear in the south is that this is an unpleasant theatre of the com, of the <laughs> combat, you know. And both sides are pretty brutal to civilians. Yep. And what is coming through from some of my sources is that actually, a lot of the Americans, especially the mountain men, were a lot more brutal to some of the wavering loyalists who were, you know, leaning more towards the British than the British were to the wavering local troops. Yeah,
0: it could be. And, you know, you see that the locals, locals can be really tough on local people.
1: Mm.
0: How dare you side with the enemy? Um, You know, you can't do that. That's And so sometimes your neighbors can be brutal (laughs) if you're going to side with somebody who's not the neighbors, you know. Um, You can't be a traitor against us. You're one of us.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you look at these sort of portrayals when you see them in Hollywood about massacres and things, and the reality is by most standards of the period, ironically this is a fairly civilized war
0: yeah 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 not not anything like what you're going to get like what you saw at the battle of waterloo mm. um which is just man it gets really down and dirty which i love that episode
1: by the way oh thanks
0: great that great set of episodes there um but yeah
1: pretty crazy pretty it, crazy it, it was and then then of course i suppose to, to sort of wrap it up um britain has has given up in all but name and she she has to try and make this peace around around the world, essentially. Yeah. Um, she loses a lot of the gains that she had previously. Um, she's lost the American colonies and there's this big question, well, what do we do next? And and it's interesting, you know, the national debt in Britain, it goes up by two hundred and twenty million during this war. I, and by the standards of the day, that was colossal. I mean it yeah. was. And they're paying um, 7.33 million annually. At, at, that's their annual debt repayments yeah. at about 3% interest. And I mean, wow. yeah, it, it would have broken most countries. And what's interesting is the British, it doesn't break them. It They still have the hold on the West Indies that they needed. They still have these footholds in India. So yep. this idea that sort of, Oh, it should be remembered as a national catastrophe for the British. Well, it, it wasn't. It wasn't good, not by any means. Um, but Britain comes out of the war with one sort of big advantage, which is it destroys the French economy. I mean, it, it wrecks yeah. it completely. You know, the British, uh, the British are paying three percent on their interest, whereas the French are paying at least six percent, uh, and and their economy, they just can't. Sustain this, you know, and it absolutely, cra- I think it, it leads to the French Revolution almost directly.
0: Yeah, at least one of the, the lead ins to it. On the other hand, Britain, um, I mean, you're about to have another war in 10 years, mm. 10, 12 years down the road against the French, but yeah. um, yet you guys don't have a revolution. No. Uh, and that's because your economy could absorb it and um, you could go on. Whereas eventually all of this is going to come back. I mean, the French spent a lot of money, and it's going to come back, kind of bite them in the in the rear end. It's kind of, I guess, for the French, a little bit of a pyrrhic victory.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's again one of those things that sometimes gets skimmed over is just how important the French were to this revolution. Yeah, and um,
0: especially. Yeah, and and the end. Yeah, well, part of that too is because you don't want to touch on the importance of other actors because then it it diminishes the national creation myth. Mm. uh, And kind of this idea that, well, we did it to ourselves. Well, yeah, but um, part of it is too, you're at the right place at the right time.
1: Mm.
0: Um, You know, and secondly, you had some help when you needed it. Sure. You did the heavy lifting, but you know, you did get some assistance there and that assistance was important.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think, I think actually that's one of the the most frustrating things is that people sometimes think that by setting out history accurately, you're somehow diminishing things. It's just yeah. well, no, no, you're not you're, you're telling it how it actually was, and it, you know Washington's achievements are just as astonishing getting that army across the Delaware, you know yeah. whether the French helped later or not. You know, exactly. There are still moments of astonishing heroism on both sides. It doesn't. It doesn't need to be this sort of triumphal procession myth to be really amazing. Exactly,
0: and I I like it better when it's more complicated and dirty. And um, I don't like these cartoon versions where it's just you know, um, oh, let's all worship at the altar of you know, X, Y, and Z, and oh, it was just so perfect. And uh, Mm. no, this way it's much, much more interesting. I think.
1: Oh, I, I completely agree. And I mean, it, it's, it's funny to see just how quickly that Britain and America managed to come to what is a fairly good, sometimes antagonistic, but mostly fairly good working relationship quite quickly. Whereas the, the thing that really jumps out at you after this war is that the main plane is dumped squarely on the French, so the British loathe the French for this. (laughs) It's not forgotten or forgiven.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, the Americans and the British are eh, here and there, here and there, Hmm. up through the 19th century, but, I mean, only a century or so of of, eh, maybe somewhat antagonistic, somewhat non-antagonistic relationship is nothing compared to the centuries (laughs) that the Hmm. French and British had... uh, I mean, you guys have been going at it off and on for, you know, seven hundred years at this point. <laughs> and you still got a couple more before you're finally like, okay about World War One, I, I guess we'll kind of all make nice and make yeah. nice. but you know, it took a while for the French and British to finally get over it.
1: Yeah, well it it does. And I think what's interesting is that this sort of thread of slight slight tension between Britain and America kind of carries on until probably if we're honest until world war Two, and then in world war Two, yep. everything changes and suddenly it's well we've always been best friends we're you know <laughs> yeah A special relationship <laughs> it, exactly you know that that wasn't quite there in that way in the 19th century yep. but then you now have this rediscovery of of a lot of the common heritage and philosophy that underlay the two two branches of The English-speaking people, as Churchill would have put it. Yep.
0: Yep. Fascinating stuff. Yep. All right, so that was our special episode to celebrate the first anniversary of the show. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it and found it interesting. Like I said, we hope to do this uh, again in the future, and I would like to get other people to come in and kind of join me on the podcast. So look for that in the coming months. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the show, please, as always, give us a... Review on iTunes or on Stitcher or Google Play, whichever um, way you're seeing, listening to the show. You can follow us, as always, at American His Cast on Twitter, and the email address is Sean at the American History Podcast. Until next time, have a good day.